first question is to Barnaby, who has a microphone already, which is fortunate. Um, Wale, congratulations. Um, in my experience of watching short films, th thrillers in particular can pose a challenge at the, at the short form length. So I'm just wondering, taking you back to the, uh, the pre-production phase when you were scripting, uh, how did you approach it? How did you approach the, ma the management of your plotting and the management of your storytelling? Um, well, I just sort of sit, sat and, and wrote, basically, and I didn't, you know, to my uh, producer's sort of lament, I, I didn't really think about um, limiting it to, you know, one or two locations, as, you know, uh, traditionally short films might do for obvious, obvious budgetary reasons. Um, I just kind of was inspired by certain events that had been happening around where I lived, and and just kind of wrote the script. Um, and so then, you know, when we turned it over to, the, when I turned it over to my producers and we uh, started to figure out how we were gonna do this, um, with the budget that we were on, uh, people were kind of having aneurysms and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how we were gonna put this thing together. So um, ultimately it was uh, an extraordinary production process where we um, shot 13 locations over four days. Um, an absurd schedule, basically, and, uh, but it, it brought a certain type, um, uh, sort of energy to the to the production process. And when you're creating a, a thriller um, in a way that kind of contributed to the way that you know people were performing in front of the camera, the way that people were behaving behind the camera, um, so it all kind of was the wellspring for the idea. This sort of this this working backwards from this fiendish plan that this guy had concocted. Um, I mean, the inspiration really came from. Uh, in the area of London that I was living at the time, um, I was reading a kind of, uh, a lot of stories about young black men getting involved in uh, altercations with the police that ultimately they weren't coming out from alive. Um, and it felt like it was uh, an alarming frequency. Um, and I started to think about, you know, what happens if you find yourself in a situation um, where you need help clearly, but you don't feel like you can call the, uh, the police. Um, and that's kind of where it all spawned this, this idea that you find yourself in such a desperate situation, but you feel completely helpless, mm -hmm. and so that leads to, you know, the decisions that Wale makes in the film. Yeah. It's a really strong, committed performance from um, Raphael Famatibi. Where did you um, come across him? What was the casting process like? Um, well, we were very fortunate to uh, bring on uh, our casting director, Des Hamilton, and uh, Alan Jones early on in the process, and uh, Des famously found Thomas Turgoose for This Is England um, and has a sort of great track record of finding young actors who perhaps haven't done too much uh, acting work before. Um, and I was looking for someone like that to play opposite Jamie Sivis, who played the role of O'Brien, um, someone who had a kind of natural kind of greenness or um, that, I wanted to kind of that, that natural feeling between them on, on you know, in front of the camera. So, uh, yeah, we, we saw uh, a lot of young guys of that age, and but Raphael immediately kind of just had something very special about him, and I think uh, off the back of this, you know, he's gone on to to get a place at RADA. Um, so, um, yeah, he's a, he's a fanta uh, fantastic young talent, and I'm sure he's going to go uh, very far in his career. Fantastic, well done. Um, from, from urban thrillers to vegan uh, salvation stories, um, Alex, 73 Cows, it feels like this film comes as a sort of right in the middle of a conversation that everyone's having about <coughs> diet and planetary requirements. Um, but I'm really interested to know, at what point in, in, in sort of the professional transition did you come across Jay and Katya? Did you know them previously? And, and how did you get in with them? No, um, my wife pointed out an article online and 
she said, just isn't this an amazing story? And I read through it and I thought, wow, I've never, ever heard of anybody doing anything like that. That would make a really cool documentary. But for some reason, it didn't occur to me straight away that I should make the documentary. <laughs> um, I just thought, you know, I can't wait to watch that. And, uh, and then no one made it. And no one made it, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I got in touch with uh, Jane Catcher. And, and I thought, I genuinely thought, oh, they'll, they'll have like a queue of filmmakers just lining up and they'll have to say, well, you know, we can fit you in on like Wednesday or something. But um, no, they were, they were, they were like, you can come whenever you want, take us, and they're here today. Um, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, they were, yeah, they were great to work with. They just said, come as often as you want, um, film whatever you want. So, yeah, it was, it was sort of dream scenario. Really. And at this point, the, the, at this point, the cows were still on the, you know, for the purposes of the film, the cows were still on the farm. The decision that there had been no home found for them. So, so, um, so um, basically, they've they've got some cows on their farm that they've kept as sort of pet cows, if you know what I mean. So um, we were the whole thing is filmed retrospectively. So we started filming after. Um, the story had sort of come out and they'd already sort of released the cows. Yeah, it's an absolutely glorious moment when they're released into the into the field. I sort of, maybe I did know this, but I'd forgotten it in childhood instances. I didn't sort of realise that cows could frolic no, like that. I, I, this is quite, it's all sort of quite amazing. And, I uh, didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. know they could do that either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, 73 Cows was awarded a, a best overall film at the 2018 Ottawa International Vegan Film Festival, which is, you know, we know the world of short film festivals is 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 broad and, and niche, yeah, but and, and niche. I, I'm I'm highlighting that I suppose to make a, a bigger point about about asking you how this film has connected with uh, niche audiences or been distributed online or how how is it travelling because this is quite a big topic. Is it getting is it getting good reception? Yeah, it's getting a really good reception. I mean, I'm quite surprised because I. I thought that it would be sort of 50-50. I thought people would say, we really like it, and I thought there'd be a bit of a backlash. But actually, I haven't really heard many negative comments, and so it's been great in that sense. And I think um, maybe that's because it's... I didn't want to do anything sort of pushy, you know. I'm not sort of saying, you know, watch this and go vegan. It's m more, to me, a film about mental health, and if you, you know, change your eating habits having watched it, then that's just a positive that's come out of it as well but that the intention was just to do a sort of character piece on Jay just because I thought it was a, a great story. And have you been to visit the cows recently? Um, not recently it'd be nice to go back and, uh, and see them all again but uh, watch them frolicking. Watch them frolicking again yeah. Excellent lovely thank you very much. Elizabeth Hobbs I'm okay you're okay I hope. Um, uh, Oscar Kokoschka is a great name to say, but that's probably not the only reason you wanted to make a film about him. I've noticed from your back catalogue that you are particularly interested in reclaiming or, or surfacing narratives about uh, overlooked historical figures. So what was it that turned you on to Oscar? And, and uh, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about how you sort of fell in love with that story. There's a, a picture of him and his, um, this doll that he had commissioned of Alma Mahler, which looks like a kind of polar bear with boobs, it's a revolting picture. <laughs> but I thought, oh, there's something here. And then I, I couldn't really make a film about the doll, so I left the doll behind. And then I read all the diaries and looked at his paintings. And 
he's written plays about her and it's only a three-year relationship but it was quite a sort of fertile area so uh, yeah I read everything and then I just kind of animated sort of quite um, loosely on the themes and the prints and the paintings that he'd made and then I kind of cut it all together at the end so I shot quite a lot of footage and then I cut it into something with this music that he'd identified as being important, this Gluck operatic score. Yeah, and then it just, this is and, what it is. And I think in your practice, you're not necessarily wedded to any one particular technique or, or style. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm really interested to know how you settle on the visual approach that you're going to take with your, with your subjects. I think it's it's sort of comes a little bit from the materials and the subject and the mixture of the two. And then um, with Kokoschka, he was a printmaker and I was a printmaker and he, he did made prints and I, I made prints. And so we, I just kind of like started sort of being him. And then I kind of, over the four years that I made the film, I kind of became a bit more me and less him. And so it's more like a kind of tribute to his amazing work that's kind of a bit more like mine. Maybe, yeah. But I've used all his imagery, so all those snakes and the apples and the birds and all those things come from his work, all the kind of visual metaphors that I've used. Yeah, and it's also a work of expressionism, albeit in your own style. I, I'm, this might be the hardest question of the day in a way, so don't feel compelled to answer it if you don't want to. But I'm wondering what it, what it is about animation that is so particular about being able to convey mentality, mental, the, men, the mental state. I didn't think about that, actually. <laughs> I didn't think about that. I just, I, in a way, I was kind of ca trying to capture something of the energy and the, the sort of drama and the energy of this passion rather than the kind of mental state. I think, yeah, I, I'm not such a great draw draftsman, so I can't sort of convey kind of moods and emotions in a way. I was trying to sort of cut it together. It's more about editing something that conveyed the kind of drama of it rather than thinking about the emotion. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Angela, director of Bachelor 38. Hello. Thank you, very, thank you very much for your extremely moving, poignant, humorous, warm, tender film. Um, I was really intrigued when I when I first saw it about this this the sort of 1960s this sort of coded secretive world and and then I wondered how it was that you'd come across Brian and, and whether or not whether you'd met him and then wanted to make a film about him or whether you were wanting to make a film about the subject matter and needed a subject yeah I am um, I read an article just at the time when there was lots in the press about the legalization of or the 50th anniversary about the legalization of homosexuality so I'd read this article um I think it was an academic that had written it talking about the kind of secret methods that people use to find each other so I'd kind of been intrigued by that and I had a friend that worked in nursing homes and so she was kind of casually scouting for people she thought might be gay and then kind of casually having a chat to kind of say like oh, is there anything going on and we searched for months and didn't find MD. And then she went to a birthday party of her next door neighbor. And Brian was his godfather. So Brian was at the party. She phoned me and said, I've met somebody I think is amazing. Still didn't know much about your story. And then we went to the pub and sat chatting for a couple of hours. And then he mentioned about meeting John. And I was like, yes, fine. This is it. This yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then the rest kind of, and then the film was kind of built around him really. I didn't have a set thing in my mind about what it was going to be or not going to be. But he was just such an amazing talker and has an amazing repository of stuff and photos and everything. So the rest kind of just built up from that, really. I, f I found it particularly, uh, you know, 
we are in a uh, production environment where it's e ever easier to make ravishing imagery. But I actually found your documentary refreshing in its in in the way you were not intrusive and you just <laughs> opened up the space to let him talk because, like you say, he's such a compelling character. Yeah. Well, also I think like I mean the, the interview that we did for that film was about two and a half hours long, maybe three hours. Mm. Um, and I just find him really engaging. And I felt that when he talked about the fact that he couldn't be acknowledged at his partner's funeral, I just thought, well, actually, you know what? This time round, maybe the film is just about him finally having his voice, him owning his own story, albeit 50-something years later. But I just kind of felt like there's not many people... I've worked in TV a long time, and there's not many people I've met like Brian that I think can hold your attention. Mm. He's got an amazing voice. He's got an amazing intonation. He can deliver a line. He says things that otherwise people, I think, would normally say that would be cheesy that don't come across as cheesy from you know from his perspective and I just thought he should speak I didn't feel like there was anything else that I could do that would mm. add to that I felt he 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 had everything in, in I, it was incredibly emotionally articulate I would actually say the same of, of, of you Jane Catcher as well I felt that all the subjects in the documentaries were very were super articulate mm. and self-aware it was really it's really it's really great um you work in development in in tv Docs. Um, so this is your first foray into into, into an independent yeah. production. What was it? What was the transition like? Um, it's much more freeing. You don't have as many people telling you what you can and can't do, and not having to commit to a particular style. So that was quite nice. You know, it's quite nice, but quite scary because then you, you're kind of like mm, a million and one possibilities. And it's it was interesting because normally I'm delivering to a channel, and the channel take you know control of promoting that film, and you're just having to. Yeah, it's my kind of first foray into doing it. So you have to just learn to navigate that territory and work out where you're going to take it, how you're going to promote it. But yeah, it's exciting. That's wonderful. I'm jealous that you got to spend two hours in the pub with him. I bet that was... <laughs> yeah, he's got some stories to tell. Yeah. Some that wouldn't probably make <laughs> for public viewing. But <laughs> <laughs> That's the next document. <laughs> yeah. The um, great. Well, thanks very much. Thank um, you. Greg McLeod, one half of the Brothers McLeod. I am. And a BAFTA winner. Yes. And a, and a BAFTA nominee previously so sort of yes. well, welcome back into the thank you my head's getting much bigger now cathedral of BAFTA nominations um Martha uh has got a funny story behind its inception hasn't it that I'm just going to let you tell if you yeah I just before I start I thank my brother who's here who wrote the poem and without whom I would not have made the film I would have gone slowly insane um yeah I had a film called 365 which got into the Martha Film Festival off the back of a friend who's a journalist in Austin saying I should submit it. He submitted his film. We both got in. We had a road trip to this little place called Marfa in Texas. Um, Which is quite an extraordinary place. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, seen. in itself. And, and how we got there was we did a Kickstarter campaign under the auspices of we wanted to make a film in Marfa. Actually, it paid for my airfare and my accommodation. So it didn't pay for the film at all. Um, so, yeah, anyway, we did that. And um, uh, it is a, it's a quite a singular place. It's nine hours from Austin and 14 from L.A. driving. Uh, it's a tiny little square of a town uh, in the West Pecos Desert. Uh, it has a train track running straight through the middle of it, um, as you saw. Yeah. Uh, and I just went and just stuck it all in, basically. I didn't have an idea really what I wanted to do with it. I just collected stuff. Were you recording, around, recording people? In yeah, I wasn't asking their permission or anything. I was just doing all the things you're not supposed to do in documentary filmmaking. I just put the iPhone on the bar and press record and 
and that kind of thing. So a lot of the interviews I had to retrospectively ask permission for, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, Did you get most of the... Yeah, they all said yes, yeah. apart from there's a couple in there that I couldn't find, so yeah. But yeah, they'll be fine with it. It's all right. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but never mind. Um, and then a lot of the music we had to... We re we, there's lots of music I listened to while I was out there that we couldn't get permission for. So a um, really good friend, uh, Tom Angel, sat with me and we worked out and we rewrote a lot of the music in the style of Rikuda or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was uh, an interesting place. You should all go and visit. The film that took you there before three six five. For those who haven't seen it, and you should, I think you can get. I think it's on. It's online. Yeah, it's on. Yeah. It's online. Is um, one second of animation for every day of the year. Yes. Which is a huge undertaking. Yes. Uh, and, and labor of love. And then this is also not not as rapid pace, but it's still quite fragmentary in nature. Quite collagey. Quite. Yeah. Uh, is there any? What is it that lends you to to that? that draws you to that particular approach do you think uh i think it's just the way my mind works <laughs> i know you know Politically. that whole yeah i just like i like like getting the sense of somewhere or something by just showing you little bits of it and then trying to find a way of linking it all together which is kind of what the poem did um we struggled for a long time to find what that was and then i asked miles to write me a poem in sort of karawaki ginsburgy kind of thing um and which he did to order. Yes, he did. Yes, he did a brilliant job. And then we got Stephanie Hunt, who's a, an actress I met when I was out there to read it with this great sort of Texan voice. And that then enabled me to use that as a linking device for the whole thing. But it's just, it wasn't really, I wasn't trying to tell you anything about Martha other than it was just, you know, these are the things I found interesting or heard when I was there that kind of got the juices flowing kind of thing. And it has subsequently, as you might expect, it was accepted as the Marvel Film yeah, Festival. Yeah, I, I, I entered it into the Marvel Film Festival, then it got into the Marvel Film Festival. Well, that's, yeah. And was, that been, be, yeah. I, unfortunately, I couldn't go back out again, but it was shown in the desert on the big screen. Had your Kickstarter donors run out of patience? Yeah, they had. Yeah. But uh, the, the nice thing was that John, who's the old guy in the film who, in, who talks about the, the road trip thing, he actually introduced the film in the desert in Texas. So that was kind of a nice little circular thing. So that's cool. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, from one BAFTA... Um, Winner to another, the, the man immediately to your left won a BAFTA in the year 2000, I think, for the, the, the man with beautiful eyes, um, Jonathan Hodgson, and is back with us now um, uh, with Rough House, uh, which I think I'm right in saying is semi-autobiographical in nature and is some, some uh, a sort of, a t you're going through a sort well, of... Well, it is autobiographical. Yeah. It's just that I've changed the names. <laughs> <laughs> You've done the bare minimum. Yeah, some of, the, some of the events are slightly fabricated, but the, 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 the dynamic is pretty much what happened, yeah. And what, what was it um, all these years later that... that have, you, have you wanted to make this project by way of atonement for a long time? Or um, did something happen to trigger I think I... I think I've dealt with it a long time ago, actually. It's more, I think I probably, it was just a story that I kept telling people. You know, when you talk about, you know, when you, when you were younger and the sort of terrible things you got up to, and uh, it just kept coming back. But I always felt like there was a point in the story where I always started feeling really uncomfortable and, um, and, and then quite emotional. And, you know, when you, you know, making films, you're always, I'm always looking around for a good story and that always seemed to be one that it stuck with me but I was I think it was also the the fact that it was you know that I didn't quite understand how how we got into that situation so I had to sort of explore it a bit and how it escalated yeah um you like I said you won the BAFTA and, and last year 2018 the, the, there was a big um 
BFI uh, celebration of animation across the whole year, up and down the country. I know you lead the animation program at, at Middlesex University. I wonder, um, you, you know, you, you, this was backed by Arte. You had to go to France to get funding for this film, despite being a BAFTA winner. I just love your insight about where, where we are as an industry with animation and, and, and in terms of new talent development. There's plenty of new talent, but not much development. I think it's got better. It's definitely got better. Um, um, I'm not sure if it's to do with the Animation Alliance, um, but I think that has had quite a, a big influence on the, the BFI and uh, the Arts Council. To, there seem to be some new schemes coming up, which could be quite good, not just for emerging talent, but established talent as well. So, fingers crossed. I still don't think it's enough, but compared with France and other parts of Europe. But um, I think it, things, things are a lot better than they've been for a long time, hopefully. What was it like co-producing um, a, a script um, you know, about regional identity to an extent with accents and vernacular in, in a French context? How did, how did that process go? Um, well, a lot of the language they, and the, the words uh, that didn't make any sense really to to the, the the French animators so well I just had, I just had to sort of explain what it all meant and kind of there was, there was quite a, I think the acting was the hardest thing because they didn't really know how people would phrase things and so well I, I had to phrase stuff myself sort of act it out myself but we also shot footage uh, um, of, of people acting stuff out they, they're very <coughs> French animation is very beautiful and elegant, and uh, I had to get, get them to tone that down and <laughs> <laughs> make it a bit more brummy. Really. Well, it's great. Congratulations, um, Paul. Hello, Paul Taylor. If the acid test of good horror is an audience yelping in discomfort, then I think you've you pretty much and laughing and, laugh, yeah. and laughing. That's what we were aiming. Nervous release yeah. afterwards. Um, <laughs> I was watching. I was doing that thing where I was both watching behind my fingers and trying to block my ears. So I was trying to hide from the whole thing. Um, to what extent are you a, a big student of the genre? Is horror your thing? How have you developed your your bag of tricks? Um, I like horror. I'm not like a complete horror nut. No. Uh, I work a lot in comedy in sort of my day job, and I think they're very similar beasts. They're both sort of like you're going after like a primal sort of response to watching something. So I think a scare is very similar to sort of a, a gag in a way. But I've always, I really enjoy watching horror films because I like the little roller coaster ride and the sort of, the little journey you go on if you can dare to go on it. And uh, yeah, so it was good. <laughs> it was good to do this. I didn't write it, Ben and Megan who are here wrote it. And when they sent me the script, I was like, wow, that's really good fun, let's do it. That's great. It's interesting that you're not a horror nut because you've absolutely nailed the beats. I think it's. it's, it's yeah, my last short film is a horror film as oh, well. Okay, yeah. so you've had a bit of practice. <laughs> um, it made me think Her Hereditary, which was the sort of mm. big um, smart horror, let's call it, hit of, of last year. Yeah. A lot of critics picked up about the uh, a theme about fear of aging, and and of uh, old people effectively. Yeah. Was that a discussion yeah, that you had with idea, your with your writers? Like, are really really old people inherently a bit scary, or, or is that? <laughs> Was that something you were thinking about? Uh, yeah, there's definitely something in there. I think it's a lot about sort of um, the the care that basically... The, 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 I think the scary thing is that someone would get neglected um, and left in a home. And I think that's the when you first meet her, you just feel really sad for her. And hopefully that's a bit of a misdirect that you... 
Um, but then depending on what you think's going on, that we have theories behind, you know, there's something else sort of inside her that's done it to her. So there's this shades of dementia and all those sort of things that we were sort of playing around with. And um, yeah, so I think the scary thing is the sort of neglect side of it. And um, uh, is your next project going to be a horror? What have you got in the, what have you got in the pipeline? Uh, I'm, current, <laughs> I'm currently making a TV show with comedian Joe Lysett, so no. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'd love, I mean, I love making uh, like horror films. We'd love to make a, we're, we're trying to work at, do a feature of The Blue Door. So we sort of always had this idea of what would happen and sort of that would be the start, start point and where we'd go from there. So we're working up that. And I've written a feature for another thing that's more of a thriller. But yeah, they tend to sort of be quite sort of genre, I guess. I'm sort of drawn to those sort of and, ideas. And were there any particular production challenges? Uh, you know, it's it's all, all one location, yeah. but I'm thinking, wondering about the VFX it's, at the end on a on a on a short film budget. Yeah, yeah. We only so we we only had like a day and a half with Gemma, who's like amazing, but she was like in between doing Game of Thrones and stuff. So the script was a bit longer, and we had to sort of size it down, and we had to. This, we couldn't afford to build the whole set. It's all a set. <laughs> like how we did the set which uh, the team are here Lynn who did the set and uh, some of it's like bits walls that move away and stuff but we had to s the uh, the bedroom is actually also the living room we just had to like repaint it <laughs> and uh, and cut a hole in it to make the window so we sort of the paint was still wet when we were like filming the the living room so there's sort of just like yeah think I think filmmaking is a lot about just sort of problem solving most of the time and it's just sort of like right how are we gonna okay don't worry we can do this and we can we can work it out and um and as well, the uh, the studio that we got, where we um, was a massive studio, but had a tiny door to get into it, um, <laughs> Fair and, enough yeah, and we couldn't get any of the flats in, so uh, we had to sort of chop them all in half and get them in to get them in. And uh, yeah, there was lots of challenges, but it was like the most fun. It was so much fun. Like, yeah, it was lovely to do. Well, it terrified me, so congratulations. Oh, good. Well, we we succeeded. Thank yeah. you. Uh, from a, from a pokey, creepy flat to the cornfields of India. Um, congratulations on the field. Sandia, um, it feels very classical and literary to me, this this short, in the best possible sense. It's, it feels like sort of pedigree filmmaking. I know that you won the best short film award at, at Toronto this year, um, and that also this was your move from, from documentary into fiction. Um, where did the idea come from, and how long did you spend out in India, India producing it? Um, yeah, so I, I wrote it... Um I was listening, I was at a concert listening to like some sitar music and I just, for some reason, was imagining lovers in a field because I know that that's, I spent a lot of time in India as a in my documentary making. And, yeah. You know, I would always have discussions with young women about things like this, you know, and they'd all make jokes about what happened in the field at night. Uh. And then I was listening to this, to this, I was at this concert and I just had this image, it was really beautiful of some lovers in a field. And then... And then I thought, oh, it's, then I wrote this story and I thought it's, it's such a beautiful idea that the field in which she can live her love out is also the field which is going to nourish her. And, mm. and, um, and I wrote it and I thought it's a really nice short story. And I'd been on the Sundance Labs um, with a, a, my first feature, a fiction feature. And I really wanted to make something before I... Um, Go and do that. Yeah. So um, I came up with that idea. Which is also your features also in in, in India. India. Yeah. So I thought I'd test out. You know, a do I like fiction? Can I manage fiction? What's it all about? Um, what you know? Who you, you can. Know? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, you really can. <laughs> How you know? What, what's what are the situations in India? But um, but of course, having done no fiction whatsoever, and it, and really enjoying the writing process. 
I just wrote this thing. There's this lone cornfield. It's the only cornfield in the village. It's all at magic hour, like idiot. And um, and then when I got to you know start thinking about production, I was I was really cursing myself. Like, okay, how am I going to find one field while being in England that I can control from <laughs> sitting here because I'm not out in India to make sure that you know nobody's else because it has to stand alone because it's the last one and. It was, you know, I went all over India to the maize institutes. It was ridiculous to find this farmer who was ultimately amazing, who owned everything in that area that? and agreed, yeah, and agreed to to keep this field. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, and then I had to find a corn that was also really luscious because by the time it's ready to harvest, it's actually not very attractive. It's like yellow and yeah, all, it you know. it's grey husky. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not very sexy, yeah. but I wanted it to be sexy, to... but also had to harvest it within this five day shoot. So you said I need some sexy I need harvestable some sexy, corn. Yeah, but I found yeah. it's, I think it's seed 15609. <laughs> That's, it's called evergreen. It stays green until, but this is very difficult to find that farmer who's got that seed. Who owns all the quite a corn. particular director? Are you? No, I didn't. No, no just just naive <laughs> writing. That's what I'm saying. Naive writing. Yeah. Um, and you said you've done a lot of documentary work in India, particularly. Mm. What were the what were the things crossing over into narrative fiction that surprised you about yourself as a director? Were there things that you thought were going to be terrifying that weren't, or you know, how was that process? Yeah, basically, I thought that I would. For me, documentary making, I was always I was always feeling comfortable about being loose, you know, being as a documentary maker, being able to adapt, to have an idea, but then be in a situation and understand when something, you know, good is happening or where something's authentic or not authentic. What what surprised what I was very terrified of was, you know, the level of pressure and time, especially when I when I realized that the whole thing was at magic hour pretty much, which was a really big challenge for a first film. But what I was surprised by it was how much I enjoyed the adrenaline. I had no, I'd not expected that. It. You could channel it yeah, in a productive way. Because normally I'm totally neurotic and I have to like voice everything, but you just can't when there's loads of people around. So, so you know, so they're laying tracks in the field to do this thing at Magic Hour when she's, when in the second scene when she's going through and it's not ready at all and the light's fading, but you can't just have a meltdown, can you? So it's like, right, any idea how, <laughs> how long I'll be thinking it's going to be? You know, so it was quite good to like <laughs> have to force yeah. to pretend to be calm and reasonable. Um, and in the same year that you made this, you also went round India in a slightly different way because you made a project called Round India with a movie camera, which was um, exploring the holdings of the BFI National Archive um, that it has of, of films made and shot in India um, all the way up to partition, all the way up to independence. I'm wondering, I don't know which film came first or which project came first or whether you were working on them both simultaneously. Yeah. To what extent those two processes were in dialogue with each other, even if it's, I don't, I don't know, were they informing each other to a certain extent? Well, maybe in, in the fact that for me, I've always really been drawn to filmmaking as opposed to writing, which I really do also love. Like I'm, you know, writing yeah. for other people and I, I love screenwriting. Yeah. And that, that's a good home for me to write. But what I really love about filmmaking is the economy. Mm. And when I was using the archive, it was so much about how two shots were relating, finding a new meaning from this colonial archive, which was shot from a British perspective, mm. and taking that, taking that and, and making meaning out of it. And for me, I just wanted to make sure in this short that every shot counts, that every, you know, that every shot is considered and the cuts are considered. And, you know, I'm just, I was very wanted it to be very precise and very economical. 
Great, fantastic. Good. Well, I think I've been monopolising your time, so I think it's definitely time to throw it um, open to the audience for, for questions. Do you, does anyone have um, a question for our Avengers Assemble panel? And I just wondered what years it was actually set. Eight, sometime in the eighties, I guess. Um, well, it's it's. I suppose it's about so it's meant to be around so late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Um, I, th I thought the music would be a giveaway. So our composers, Stuart Hilson's in the audience actually, but it, uh, did a great job on the music, which is very much based. On, I mean, we've got very similar music tastes, so. Uh, and and he went to Liverpool as well a few years after me. So, but but we worked um, quite. We we talked a lot about the music and uh, tried to get music which was reflected that that time. Sort of like post punk bands like The Fall and and sort of like, uh, Cabaret Voltaire and uh, Human League that kind of thing. Thank you. Any more questions from the audience? Hi, I had a question about the blue door. Was it always going to be a set build? Or did you consider locations and just obviously putting the door in? But Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did consider doing it in a location, and we just sort of weighed up, and then we had limited time. So our brilliant DOP was just like, the only way to do this in like a day is just have a set, just consistent light. And yeah, so it sort of made its mind up for it, which because we had so little time to do it. It, it. Did you say it was like one one and a half days, or just one day shooting? It was. Uh, it was. Yeah. It was. We had uh, a whole day with Gemma, and then she she could give us like a morning before she had to go. So we sort of filmed. We just got these the the living uh, was it, yeah the living rooms, all the stuff in the red living room. So like her looking in, and then the the panning shot that reveals the door. So we did all, sort of all that in sort of a morning, and then she had to sort of shoot off. Yeah. Hello, I thought all the films were stunning and I'd like to, I'll be talking about them to many people, my friends, but how can I tell people where to see them? What's the future for, or the marketplace for these films in the future beyond here? Curzon Home Cinema. Yes, they'll be on Curzon from Friday on Curzon On Demand and, and they're followed by a cinema tour. From, in cinemas from tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and presumably continuing long and healthy lives on the festival circuit, and then and then probably some of them, some of you may have a, a very internet friendly outlook and be putting them up quite soon. I don't. I can sort of depend depend case by case. Uh, time for one more question. Yes. Congratulations on being nominated, and good luck for Sunday. Um, what I was wondering is, what advice you have for new filmmakers who dream to be in your position one day? Advice for new filmmakers who will be in your position one day. Do it. Do it. A, a, a little, a little word from each of you, maybe. Fail fast. Fight. Make, lo make lo fail fast. Make fail things. Fast. Make lots of things. Make them short, and then figure out what you want to what you want to say, and how you want to say it. Bit cheesy, but there you go. and then say it. Yeah, just say. It. Just say. It. Um, I'd say something quite similar, really, which is just. Don't be afraid of making bad work. Um, that stopped me from making films for a fair few years, just thinking, oh, you know, it's not going to be at the level that I want it to be at. Um, 
but just don't let that stop you and just go for it anyway. And you, if it is rubbish, it's rubbish, and you'll just learn from it. So it's all much the same, actually. I think you just got to keep going. Yeah, don't give up, and uh, somehow try and believe in what you're doing that it's it's worth doing uh, against all odds, uh, and eventually someone will notice you. I think the same as well. Just keep making things. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't matter if nobody notices you, though. Just keep doing it anyway. I think, uh, I think just surround yourself with with brilliant people is the the, the trick that I've kind of uh, found. I think you know um, some of them are in this room. Robbie Bryant, my cinematographer, my producers, uh, Sophie Alexander, Catherine Slater, Ed Blizz. Um, you know people who just work so hard with so much passion and um, if you surround yourself with people like that then uh, then you've got half a chance. I think um, find something that you really love because it takes you ages to sort it and I think if you want to be a producer you have to beg, borrow and steal however big or small your budget is and I think that if you care about something you'll find a way of making it work so I think you just have to like it a lot in the beginning because by the time it gets to the end you're a bit like oh my god so yeah that would be my advice. Yeah similar I think just um just make just make stuff and don't worry about it too much and just get out and have fun and make stuff that you want to make, obviously. Don't make stuff you don't want to make. <laughs> All wisdom's been imparted. I've All wisdom's been imparted. No. Okay, wonderful. Well, look, we know we know it's a competitive environment. Congratulations to the eight of you for making it today. And thank you very much.